one of the most urgent kind of pressing challenges we have is upgrading our water infrastructure. One of the things that really strikes me when I look back over it is how many projects in a way haven't been designed, how many um, say drainage screens are quite ugly so they're mm. functional but certainly not designed. And it's just incredible now because it's one of the busiest parts of the city and I think if you go down there most people won't realise actually that they're they're only there because of a sewer. Many people who visited it, perhaps at an open house event, will know it's incredibly beautiful and it's completely closed to the public apart from once a year. We really do need to be thinking more holistically as I keep going back to about them because I think that's the only way we can actually really combat this for sort of generations to come. London's embankment, which is obviously an astonishing achievement of architecture and engineering and landscape architecture. So that's a good place for us to start. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking, landscape, nature and the environment through conversations with leading practitioners. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast is based. The current edition of Landscape looks at water, management, drainage, swimming, seaside promenades and infrastructure. In the last episode, which we broadcast a month ago, Sue Illman, who guest edited the edition, talked about the importance of sustainable drainage. In this episode, we will be looking at wastewater management, in particular in London, and investigating the value of holistic design-led approaches to major infrastructure projects. Joining me today is the architect, curator, and urbanist Madeline Kessler. Welcome. And before we start, I wanted to ask you, tell us a bit about how and why you chose to work as an architect. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Paul. Um, that's a good question. I think I've always been really interested in people and cities um, and sort of how our urban spaces impact our mental and physical health. Through that, I naturally was sort of drawn to studying subjects at university, which would be about cities and uh, the built environment. And so I studied a joint degree at Sheffield, which was engineering and architecture. And through that, I sort of worked uh, for a while as an engineer and then I transformed into sort of an architect. Yeah, so it was a, it was a great kind of introduction, I think, into the kind of holistic nature as well um, of the built environment. That's really helpful because um, the front cover of this edition of the journal, which I have to say was inspired by your article, is an engraving of, um, well, the sewers created by Bazalgette on London's embankment, which is obviously an astonishing achievement of architecture and engineering and landscape architecture. So that's a good place for us to start. Um, in this edition of Landscape, you chose to write about large-scale water infrastructure projects. And what we're going to look at in a moment is the Thames Tideway project. But tell us a bit about why you become so involved with the topic of infrastructure in particular. I've always been interested in architecture as this conversation about the city at every scale. And I think infrastructure really embodies that. <clears throat> it's something that sort of works across systems um, at a mega scale, but also at a smaller scale. And it's all about people. It's all about improving the way that we live and improving the health of our planet and, and of humans. And I think as I've been working through engineering and architecture, I've sort of worked on various projects at different scales from water fountains to airports to new cities. Um, and through that became quite interested in how when an architect or designer comes involved on a project like that, it's often quite late on in the conversation. 
Um, and I started to become more and more interested in sort of how we could get design embedded into these projects from the earlier stage. And through that, I started looking into infrastructure policy, where all these decisions are, are kind of made. And I sort of came across the National Infrastructure Commission and they were doing a launch for people to join their inaugural Young Professionals panel. And so I joined that and uh, we were a group of 16 people. I was one of two designers on that panel. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating to learn more about sort of heavy essential infrastructure, the conversations around that, uh, which I hadn't really been involved with before then, but also to learn how design is really missing from that. And I think that's really sort of led me over the past uh, few years to become more and more interested in how we get design embedded into that essential infrastructure. That is really fascinating because this edition is devoted to water. In many ways, it's devoted to design mm. from an architectural, landscape architectural and engineering point of view. Um, it's interesting because water management as well as water security have absolutely dominated the headlines, well, the past few weeks as well as the past few months with droughts and floods becoming so much more frequent. Um, this is a very broad brush question, but I want to ask it anyway. How would you describe the state of water infrastructure in the UK at the moment? I mean, it's a it's a breaking point. I think it's, you know, one of the most urgent pressing challenges we have is upgrading our water infrastructure. Um, and that's everything from flood defences to sewage systems to how we treat our water and, and work with water. You know, water is the backbone of, of how we live um, as, as people, as society. Um, and we're relying on these uh, water systems that are more than a century old, nearly two centuries old, some of them. And, you know, we've changed since then. They've not, they've been poorly maintained. They weren't necessarily built to last this long. Um, but also we're dealing with different climatic conditions. Uh, we're dealing with different population densities. And as you say, I think there's actually a huge missed opportunity to embed design into these projects. Um, some of them are massive projects, which are quite scary because of the kind of time they take to deliver, uh, the kind of cost of them. But in fact, there's also an opportunity to embed design and make them just work that much harder for us, uh, not for much extra cost. How would you say there's been this change in public focus? I mean, for example, there's a lot of the news recently, as you mentioned, has been on sewerage, surfers against sewerage were on Newsnight just a couple of days ago. Um, so there's a change in public focus. Has that translated into... Uh, a change in the behaviour of the built environment sector and all the construction industry, do you think? Not as much as I would have hoped. And I think we definitely need to see more change happen. And again, it needs to be holistic change. So it needs to be everyone kind of changing their attitudes and, and to this, like everyone from architects, designers, landscape architects, to politicians, to citizens, to people delivering the projects. It's, um, I, I guess it's a classic that also actions speak louder than words. So it's one thing to highlight and see this happening, but it's another thing to action it. Um, I think something very interesting with Surface Against Sewage is that, you know, they're really petitioning now, well, they're lobbying to get in the party manifestos of the upcoming elections to get sewage really high on the agenda. And as part of that, one of the policies they're targeting for is getting environmental uh, kind of landscape-led approaches as well to sewage um, as part of his manifestos. And I think that's something we can all be doing, actually. If you go to their website, you can copy the letter and write to your politician. And yeah, it's it's something that we all kind of have responsibility to to see change for. Are you... As an architect, seeing clients and some of the public bodies that you work with becoming more 
focused on water security, or do you think this is just about public interest in the subject at the moment? I think there definitely is a increase in awareness of the importance of water, particularly flooding and sewage. But I, I don't think there's enough being done. You know, it can still be quite a tick box approach when it comes to these issues. We really do need to be thinking more holistically, as I keep going back to about them, because. I think that's the only way we can actually really combat this for sort of generations to come. And I think we definitely need a longer term strategy and longer term thinking. Um, I think, unfortunately, like the government's just become shorter and shorter term in its thinking, especially when it comes to infrastructure recently. One of the reasons the National Infrastructure Commission was set up was to have a longer term vision on infrastructure, because without that, you sort of get people just thinking in their sort of five year or immediate terms. And I also think as a society, people have become very used to wanting to see change and things action very quickly. And we sort of need to maybe take a step back and have a bit more patience in in how we're sort of delivering and seeing things happen. Now, we are recording this uh, podcast in um, Tottenham Court Road, which is about 20 minutes from the river. And we're recording this in the city, which in the summer of 1858 was overwhelmed by the famous Great Stink caused by a mix of rotting effluent industrial waste and a summer heat wave. Now, Joseph Bazalgette, who was then the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works, which I think preceded both the London County Council and the Greater London Authority, uh, he was commissioned to deliver a new sewerage system that would funnel waste downstream of the city basically ultimately dumping it near to the sea. Can you tell us about the scope of this project, which, as I said, we featured rather splendidly on the front cover? It's actually it's an incredible project, and it was really brought about due to the public health crisis of waterborne illnesses, um, all this sewage spilling, spilling out into the Thames and other rivers. You know, it was causing all sorts of uh, diseases, and it was a real public health issue. Um, But as part of the huge engineering work required in creating this combined sewer system, sort of treating raw sewage, but also allowing for storm overflows. As part of that, there are also opportunities to create new pieces of public realm. And so there are all sorts of new pieces of public realm along this sewage system, which are now just part of London and the city that you wouldn't even know when you're using them, that they're only there because of a sewer. Um, And I think a great example of that is that embankment, uh, Victorian embankment, and so the different layers as well that were required uh, for the sewage system, it sort of allowed for this new tube station, um, allowed for a new kind of promenade for people to walk on by the Thames. And it's just incredible now because it's one of the busiest parts of the city. And I think if you go down there, most people won't realise actually that they're they're only there because of a sewer. Uh, absolutely. And it's now because it, it, it's pedestrians, it, it's the highway, but also it's one of the biggest cycle tracks yes, in London, yeah. interestingly. Um, Basil Jet, we've discovered, was offered a budget to complete the London sewer network of equivalent to between £250 million and £1 billion at today's value. In the current century, much of our water infrastructure is privately owned. So my question is, how does this value compare to the amount of investment we've seen in the past 50 years or so? It's a really good question, and it's a great kind of fact to have found. Uh, because I think it really highlights how important it is to invest in our infrastructure and and our water infrastructure um, and how, you know, these 
huge projects. They cost a lot of money, but the value is there for generations to come. And so we have to be long-term thinking in how we think about the value that they're bringing about. And I think there is sort of this conflict when it comes to the privatization of our infrastructure and that suddenly a private firm has to, you know, they, they, they have to respond to shareholders and have very immediate profit gains. Um, and so the conversation sort of changes. And I think we've definitely seen that in the water sector. Uh, you know, it's been reported numerous times of this kind of profits before what's happening to our water. And there's a real lack of transparency as well as to what's going on uh, with it all. And so I think it is really important that we see this as something that's really important for everyone. It, it should be almost a human right. It should be a human right, actually, for us to have uh, safe access to water. And I think we should be looking back to projects like Basel Jet and, you know, Victorians were amazing with their infrastructure, what, what they sort of managed to design and build and the pride they took as well in the design of the infrastructure, you know, Crossness and, you know, all these different sewage works. And I think we really need to sort of be inspired by that and put ourselves again at the forefront of, uh, of producing this kind of infrastructure. Because what you've reminded me by mentioning Crossness, which is, I think it was the processing station for effluent coming out of London, is that many people who visited it, perhaps at an open house event, will know it's incredibly beautiful and it's completely closed to the public apart from once a year. And so what's interesting is you have this building, which is incredibly functional, is beautiful to look at, but it's not on display. So it's not a town hall, it's not mm. a public monument. And I wonder, um, do you think there's any equivalent of that level of kind of hidden public municipal pride in our current engineering architecture? You know what, I I watched a documentary about the new Thames Tideway super sewer and the care that has been taken over that concrete in, in a way could be the equivalent. Um, you know, it's, it's like so beautiful and pristine. But I think it is a really good question. It's just kind of the pride that's taken in the design and the appreciation of design. I think the National Infrastructure Commission uh, commissioned this value of design and infrastructure delivery reports. Um, and what they found was there's this huge kind of misconception within infrastructure industries that if you add design onto a project or make a project overrun, it will make a project cost more. When in fact, the evidence is the contrary. You get designers involved in a project early, it's more likely to run on time, on budget, to value. Plus, it will be really beautifully designed and bring loads of additional benefits. Um, and so it's almost like we've had this shift away from appreciating the value of design and designs become this add-on that can sort of be value engineered out. And uh, it's kind of just about aesthetics, but it's not. It's, it's much more than that. Do you think that a definition of professional behavior is that something is beautifully designed even if no one gets to see it? I think you're absolutely right. I think that is should be the definition of good design that everything, whether you see it or not, should be detailed to, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, well, that yeah. is a very helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me, um, another question about Bazalgette's system, because it's been uh, working for London for 150 years. The population has increased significantly uh, with maybe 9 million people making use of that system. At the time when the system was built, there were only 4 million Londoners in the city. In 2016, work began on upgrading the sewer system to create what is now called the Thames Tideway project. So in fact, in many ways, a completely new system. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is being designed? And in fact, what is, I think, relatively near to completion? 
Yes, I mean the the Thames Tideway project. It's it's another incredible project, sort of once in a, a generation project. It's a huge super sewer that goes sort of the length of the Thames, um, and it's essentially an upgrading of our sewage system so that it will no longer overflow into the Thames, and you know that in turn will make our water in the Thames more pure, and and we can actually maybe swim in it and things like that. But similar to Basel Jets. Um, as a part of this project, there's new pieces of public realm that are being created. So interestingly, if you want to build out into the Thames, you can't because of planning. But as part of this sewerage system, it sort of requires different outputs at different points. And that has meant that actually there is an opportunity to build these new pieces of public realm out into the Thames and these new gardens. Um, And there's a whole series of them. And some of them are sort of designed to be flooded so that people suddenly have a connection to the Thames and their water. And others are sort of, you know, spaces for people to meet and contemplate and recreational spaces, uh, which are really exciting, you know, in a a city as densely populated as London. um, But also the fact that it's sort of challenged, uh, you know, that planning system and the way that maybe we can create new public spaces and sort of allow an infrastructure project to sort of be beneficial to us, not just functionally, uh, in terms of what it's doing, in terms of its essential value, but also in the other values it can bring. I went on an open city boat trip about a year ago, which focused entirely on these new public spaces. And, and I think it was Gillespie's, uh, I think the landscape architects yeah. with Hawkins Brown, yeah. the architects. And um, so they were talking about them and explaining what they did. And the one thing they didn't explain was or say is what they ought to be called because they're not bridges. Yeah, and they're not parks; um, they're kind of things yeah, sticking yeah. out. So I just wondered if you have any thought on what we could call them once oh, they're good open. Question: <laughs> It would be nice if they if they had sort of some kind of sewage or infrastructure name, really, because yeah. I, I like the fact that they're about connecting people with their infrastructure yeah. as well. And there's this real opportunity to uh, make people more aware, I suppose, of the systems that are often invisible um, but are serving yeah. our, our daily needs. But I can't think of the top of my head of something. Maybe like an infra park. <laughs> Basil Jetties. Oh my god, I love yes, that Basil yeah, Jetty. Yeah. Basil Jetties. I think. Honest, that's the other. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Basil Jetty. I love it. I love it. Now I want to just go back to the um, National Infrastructure Commission's design group, which yeah. you mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, in 2020, it launched the UK's first design principle for national infrastructure. Tell us a bit about some of the priorities that were laid out. So yeah, I sit now. I sit on the design group and. What we're doing is we're trying to get design really embedded into infrastructure policy, but also infrastructure projects. And so that everyone working on them realise that they have something to kind of offer when it comes to design. And so we launched the design principles in 2020 and their four principles, climate, people, place, value. Um, and they are to be adopted by everyone, whether they're a strategic decision maker or a client, to a designer, engineer, uh, someone delivering a project. Everyone now has to embody these principles in what they're doing. And so it's all about how we can essentially add value into our infrastructure projects beyond just economic value. And so every project we're working on, we have a responsibility to make sure it's improving our climate, that it's creating places for people, involving people in the engagement process, bringing them along that journey rather than people feeling like projects are just given to them. Um, and through that, finding added benefits that a project can bring to different communities that they're affecting. Because often, you know, infrastructure projects, they can be really disruptive. 
um, places that they're sort of enhancing a sense of place and then value, thinking about the economic value, but also the additional other values that, that a project can bring. Um, so it's really about trying to make our projects uh, work much harder for us. And, and these have now been adopted by governments. So they are by law sort of to be used on all nationally significant infrastructure projects. Uh, another sort of recommendation has been to have design champions on projects and that's also been adopted so every significant infrastructure project should also have a design champion and it's it's been really exciting so once every five years the national infrastructure commission brings out a national infrastructure assessment and that sort of sets the government's sort of policy recommendations that they should take forward and the government has i think it's six months to respond to this and they have to have a really good reasons if they don't want to take something on board otherwise it has to be taken on board um, and so the last one was released in October last year and we managed to get a whole load of sort of design influenced recommendations in there which was really exciting and some of that was actually working with uh, people like the Landscape Institute and other institutions like REBA uh, Design Council you know we sort of brought all these different institutions together around these different roundtables to really understand what the issues are with embedding design into projects also why it's often not brought forward. So we're also talking to sort of contractors and people like the Global um, Infrastructure Investment Association about, you know, why, why isn't design put into the brief to begin with? And then going forward, why does it become a difficulty to sort of allow designers to stay on board and, and design to be embedded into projects? And so it's been a, a really big challenge, but I think um, it's also really exciting to have seen these design-led policies uh, go into the NIA too and, Hopefully they will go forward once the government responds, which should be in a few months' time. I want to ask you um, a question about design decisions. I took great pleasure in titling this edition uh, From Basiljet to Suds in the City. And um, and it was very interesting. Uh, a lot of the conversation with Sue Ilman on the last podcast was about designing for sustainable drainage. If you were designing a brand new garden city or new town, mm. and clearly the next government is very interested in looking at that. Could you envisage designing uh, without any hard infrastructure? And for example, could you envisage designing a, a new town which was entirely led by sustainable drainage? Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I mean, is it is it technically possible? Is that I mean, I the reason I'm interested in this is a few years ago I helped to curate an exhibition at the building centre called Transforming the Urban Landscape. And we did this calculation uh, that if we inserted a sub scheme in every street in London, mm -hmm. there would be no need for the Thames Tideway. I'm not quite sure where we got the figures from yeah, for this yeah. assertion, which possibly we couldn't have substantiated. Yeah. But there was an interesting idea, and clearly retrofitting a huge city is not yeah. possible, but designing a brand new town from scratch is something. I think that would be an amazing and challenge. Is there yeah. any reason why one couldn't adopt that approach? And I think that'd be an amazing challenge. I became really interested in smart cities. I was designing this city called Oslo Airport City when I was at Haptic, and it was a new smart, sustainable city. And as part of that, we were looking at existing smart cities. And there's a city called, called Songdo in South Korea, and that's a smart city that never really functioned because the kind of urban planning um, was just so disconnected from sort of all these smart city technologies that it never kind of attracted enough people to then uh, sort of activate all these smart city technologies. And if you look up, it's just like this ghost town. 
And part of the reason it's this ghost town is because of really poor like urban design. So, you know, huge highways, um, it's not very walkable and, and things like that. And so we were sort of taking lessons learned from places like that in Swazo Airport City. And we were looking at designing sort of a walkable city, looking at 15 minute city principles and things like that. And I think what it really showed me was because um, we were working, you know, right at the beginning, sort of from the strategic business plan for the city level. But we were always looking at the kind of master plan scale at the same time as the human scale. And also we were brought on as designers into this team from a very early stage, which was quite unusual. I think it really showed me that if you have an ambition like that, you need to be thinking about the design of the city from the outset as well. So, you know, what's the density of the housing? What's Where do people live and work? How many people do you need to service? And therefore, how much suds do you need? And then thinking about the kind of layout of the city in tandem with that. And I think it'd be an amazing challenge and really, I'm sure it is possible and It'd be really exciting, actually, to, to think of doing a city like that. But it'd be so important to make sure that it was planned with designers at the same time. So you didn't just have a whole load of suds servicing like somewhere people didn't want to live. So I'd like to ask you a question really about the, the way in which Basil Depp may have influenced you. If you look back on his astonishing achievement, as well as his amazing budgets, in what way, particularly looking at the way in which we're seeking to deal with the climate emergency or failing to deal with the climate emergency. Are there ways in which the work of Bazalgette influences you to this day? Yeah, I think taking civic pride, really promoting that kind of civic pride and thinking about people at the kind of personable scale, how they're going to be using a space versus the kind of network scale and not shying away from things like sewage and public toilets. And I think there's such a taboo sometimes around these topics, which are actually really important how people use a city um, and how they function. Um, but yeah, essentially infrastructure and our cities and our planet, it's all about people and anything we can do to make an infrastructure project work harder for us and, and you know make a better place for people is, is a good thing. I think there's lots of really interesting examples as well in Japan. So um, there'll be like, a, a, you know, a new water treatment part or sewage plant and on top of it will be a park. And as you're walking along that park, you get glimpses down into the sewage treatment and you see the water changing colour. And I think having that connection as well uh, to our kind of hit more hidden infrastructure is really important. Great, Madeleine. Thank you very much for your time for this me. afternoon. And thank you for this fascinating article in the current edition of Landscape. Um, if you'd like to read Landscape, it's available free of charge. You can download a copy from the Landscape Institute website. Thank you.